So I work for theology colleges and I love theology, but I have also recently, in the last couple of years, got a little bit frustrated that theology is just, in our heads, it's just for professional Christians, right? The people who, I need a, I'm going to study theology because I'm going to get a job at the end in which I'm going to be a, a pastor or a youth minister or, do you know what I mean? Theology is the thing you do to get a Christian job at the end of it. And, uh, and, and listen, if you want a Christian job, I really want you to study theology. But it's not just for you. And, and I was getting a little bit frustrated by all my students were just there to be professional Christians. And I thought, no, there's, the local church has filled with other types of people. And the local church invented theology. And local churches go weird and crazy when they don't have it. And theology gets really horrible and dry when it doesn't have the local church. So what do you do? Uh, long story short... Great encouragement from people like Galibe. I quit my job and I went on the road. I took the show on the road. And I come now and I live with churches for a weekend or a week or a couple of days. And I've been journeying with Vine Life now since December on and off. And, uh, and I, got to, I was here yesterday and I did a day's worth of teaching. And we just, we just bring theology space to the local churches. And we say, look, you don't need a degree. You're not writing an essay not doing any of that stuff. We're just thinking Christianly about our own Christianity. And it's okay. We can do it, you know. We don't have to be, we don't even have to answer the questions. We, yesterday, we just raised a whole lot of questions, and we held them in the room without breaking fellowship. Wow. How great was that, right? <laughs> Theology isn't about clever answers to complicated questions. It's about talking about God as excellently as we can, which really just means talking about Jesus as excellently as we can. And you can't talk about Jesus excellently if you're not also obeying him and looking like him, right? So theology is just discipleship. It's worship. It's all sorts of things that we might not expect because our imaginations have been locked thinking, oh, it's about writing essays and getting a mark at the end. So forget that. Let's do it now. And uh, we've been looking at yesterday. This is a little bit, you don't have to have come yesterday, don't worry. But it, this is also a bit of a continuation of the theme that we did yesterday, which is we're looking at uh, goodness, the theme of goodness, and the idea that the kingdom of God, when Jesus marched across the land, and he's, he's demonstrating the measure of all goodness. So the kind of things that Jesus is and stands for and did, that's how we measure goodness, right? So we remind ourselves of Jesus. And one of the things that's worth paying attention to, now I'm a political theologian which doesn't mean that I care so much about who you vote for every four or five years. Um, although, I, you know, I don't think that's unimportant. But voting for a political party every four or five years is, is kind of the least important political thing you can do. Politics is not capital P party politics. I'm interested in small p politics. How do we what is our shared vision for society? How do we organize ourselves? How do we use the power that we've got? How do we give it away? How do we, do we keep it? What are we teaching our children? Who do we think that it's okay to marry or to uh, fight with? Or to, you know, like politics is, is about who, how our, our shared vision for society. It's not just about a party politics. And I, you know, I say to people like, you have just right now this group just by being here, you've made a huge political statement because you've decided my shared vision for society is to be in this room with these people. It's not to be, all, think of all the other things you could be doing right now. All the other groups, 
or non-groups you could be with. But instead, you're like, I'm going to be in a group of people that have more than one skin color, more than one accent, more than one age range. We've got different levels of education in this room. We have different levels of income. We have different party politics in this room. Right? No, I guarantee you, not everybody agrees about the same about Brexit. We've got them in this room, right? And and we have said, but those things do not totally define our lives, or we are going to make decisions about what we think is important. And so we've come here, and you are part political. I hate to break it to you. We have this idea that oh, religion and politics are separate. Like, no, that's stupid. They're not separate at all, because everything you do is in some way political. Because everything you do is in some way saying, this is what I believe in. This is how I think. I'm going to be with other people who also think that way, or we're going to figure out how to do this together. And then politics is also about negotiating that space with other groups that don't share those visions. And then what do we do, right? And the New Testament is absolutely filled with this stuff. So if you think, oh, Jesus wasn't political, this is, your, this is our problem. This isn't the New Testament's problem. The New Testament, when the, when the guys sat down to write, what did it feel like to be around Jesus? Look at the words they reached for. King, kingdom, prince of peace, right? These are political words. I hate to break it to you. And if you don't feel that politically, if you are singing all hail King Jesus, and you think it's all about a private religious act in your head, that's on you. That's not on the New Testament. They told you he's a king. That's a political word. <laughs> That's about a kind of a leader who has a shared vision for society and, and the people around him are part of a thing called a kingdom and that means that if you have allegiance to that kingdom, you don't have allegiance to other kingdoms, right? That is not a private act. So the other fun words that they had was like words that we modern Christians tend to ignore forget how political this is. And one of those great words is gospel. I said this to the chaps yesterday, euangelion is where we get the word gospel from. It's where the word evangelical comes from. And we all know that that means good news, right? But then we think, uh, so we've Christianized the word, and I'm glad we have. We've Christianized the word. So the word now means like good news, Jesus came and died and rose again for our sins so that we might be set free or something like that, right? That's the gospel. Yes, I'm not against that. But I do want to point out that if you were a first century Roman-occupied Palestinian Jewish guy and you heard the word euangelion, you don't hear Jesus who died and rose again for our sins. What you heard was a Roman political word, which simply is the kind of word that you would use to say, good news, the prince has been born, the rightful king is coming, or Good news, like it was a kind of a military connotation, like your side is winning. So if, the, if, C, if your city was under siege and Caesar gathers his army and he breaks the siege, he'd then send his heralds into the city and they'd say, Euangelion, good news. The rightful king has come and broken the siege. You know, and you go and look at the gospel writers like Mark, who's the first gospel writer, and he begins, Mark 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning, the Euangelion of Jesus Christ, God's anointed. In the beginning, the good news that the rightful king has come to break the siege. You know, it's fighting words. It's very like overtly 
there's a movement on foot on the earth which other kingdoms are having to deal with. Okay? And the other word that I want to look at is the word faith, which we've spiritualized. Have a look to Mark 5. I'm going to look at this story. It's a famous story. Most of us have, even people who don't know the Bible stories, might have heard this story. It's in Mark 5, and I'm going to start reading on Mark 5, 21. And it's the story of Jairus's daughter and the 12-year, the woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years. Perhaps I should start with a headline. The headline for faith. Before I get into it, I throw a lot of stuff against the wall, by the way, and I just see what sticks. I'm, that is the kind of way I... I don't have a sermon. I just teach. <laughs> I hope that's okay. I don't really know the difference between preaching and teaching. I just sort of teach. Um, and I don't have a landing for this. So what's going to happen, Phil? When I talk, you're going to be listening to the Holy Spirit, and he's going to tell you how to respond. And I'll hand over to you, okay? All right. It's not a slick operation we're running here. Um, the headline is that faith or belief, modern Christians, we totally have like locked into, we don't quite know what it is because we think that it might mean something like when Jesus says, believe in me, which he says all the time, or when he says to people, congratulations, uh, you know, you have faith. Our, in, our, in our minds, don't we, we tend to um, think that it's something like faith is not having any doubts. It might be about visualizing what you want as clearly as possible without any doubts. And then it's almost like a magic word. Like if we can visualize it, then the universe has to give it to us or something. Or if I can think it in my heart without doubting at all. So if I prayed for something, I have to screw up my own inner resources and I have to hold that really carefully. And if I doubt anything at all, then God's not going to give me what I want or what I ask for because it's my fault. Or we might think that when Jesus says, believe in me, he's saying something like, understand me, understand what I'm saying. Or maybe we think that belief in Jesus means I have to be able to explain him really well to other people. And until I can do that, I can't be said to have faith in Jesus. So like if I can't explain the resurrection or if I, if I have doubts about how the Trinity works, I don't have faith in Jesus. Okay? Now the problem with that those are both versions of belief sure but there's a third one which we all very well aware of uh and this is what i said before like you know sarah here what if sarah said you know raise your fist and say everyone who follows me is going to get ice cream okay so sarah jumps up and she marches out everyone who follows me is going to get ice cream and some of us would get up and follow her and the rest of us would look at each other in stunned silence and say, well, I guess they believed her. Right? That's what it feels like to hear Jesus say, believe in me. It's not, we don't understand how Sarah is going to give us ice cream. But we go, well, I trust you. I trust your character. I'm not offended by you. I want to be with you. Right? And that's what belief means. So like, Nine times out of ten, you go less wrong less often is if you can substitute the word belief or faith with something like allegiance or affiliation. A guy even wrote a book, a theologian wrote a book called Salvation by Allegiance Alone. Because the word is pistus, P-I-S-T-U-S, the Greek word, and it, it's a form of faith or belief that, that it, it's more like when Jesus says, follow me, 
or be seen to be with me, or when I return, will I find faith upon the earth, or will I find people who are ashamed of me, right? So faith in Jesus is like, I am not ashamed to be seen to be with you. I am following, and there's a geographical element to it. Almost, almost without exception, people are showing that they're with Jesus when they said to have faith in him, okay? So, there, that's a headline. Let's look at how it works. Mark 5, and when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about. And there was a woman who had been who'd had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent what she had and there was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And then he goes on to heal the daughter. But let me, let me just, let's dwell with the woman first. Um, so I just fill in some of the, have your Bible open if you want. I'm going to kind of fill in some of the details here. And one of the headlines is that all healings are always political in the New Testament. All healings always have something to do with Jesus demonstrating uh, a social, something that would have been seen to be and was meant to be a socio-political act as well. Because all healings, if you think about it, if you are living in this world and your illness is because of uncleanliness in your life, one of the results of that was you're not allowed to be part of the group again. So to heal somebody or to make them pure is to allow them to come back into the group. It's to say something about who's allowed to be part of the group or not. Does this make sense? Which is political. You're making a statement about who counts, who you're allowed to be with. So the other thing here, so Jesus, the story is right. Jesus is, is marching across the land and there's always a crowd with him. The crowd are thronging around and, and the, the word here is oklos and um, it's a word for, it's not just a word for any old group. Like, we're not an oklos right now. It's not just a group of people. The oklos were a, it was a word that you would use for, well, Jesus refers to them at one time as sheep without a shepherd. Do you remember in, sometimes in the Bible it does that? The Greeks would, or the Romans would call the oklos soldiers without a general. And they were, they were like the unruly mob. Uh, and they were also illiterate. So they were Jewish, but they were without, they didn't know, they couldn't read, so they didn't have the law. And the Pharisees said, if you hang out with the Oklos, you are unclean because they don't even have the law. Uh, so they were like a, a savage, and they were kind of a violent group as well. They were known to be, it was just like a, a kind of a mob, savage mob kind of group. 
And it's interesting to point out that Jesus was associated with the oclos all the time. That was, this, that was this, the people who were, you know, and, and those were the people that were cheering for him when he came into Jerusalem. Those are the people, by the way, who, who are yelling crucify him later on. So they're a fickle group, but they're the group that he's associated with. So when people say, oh, uh, oh and, you know, they were uh, illiterate and unlearned and savage and unclean. And so when people say, oh, the, the woman who touched Jesus' cloak made him unclean, like, no, no, he was unclean a long time before. It's an interesting feature about Jesus. He, whenever given the option for cl- to be pure, he rushes the opposite direction. And then he says, be pure as I am pure. It's interesting. Anyway. So, there's the woman, uh, the, uh, the crowd is around, and then the ruler of the synagogue comes to Jesus, right? Jarius, the ruler of the synagogue. There's a sort of an element here that, by the way, you were talking Roman-occupied Palestine, right? So, to be the ruler of a synagogue means that in, it's possible you're in some way compromised with the powers that be. So, there's an element here that Jarius is a bit of the enemy, by the way. And you can see this as love for enemy, because the Oclos would not look at Jarius and think, what a great guy. They would look at him perhaps as part of the oppression. In any case, Jarius is a brave man and he sends, he's, he's willing to be identified with Jesus against his own social instinct and social class. And he sends somebody to Jesus and he says, can you come and heal my daughter? Now, so the daughter is 12 years old. She's got a man to speak for her, right? Because that's what you need. She's a virgin, she's the daughter of a synagogue ruler, like she's the highest of the high. And the whole crowd now is moving towards this event where the highest of the high, the purest of the pure is going to get, get healed, right? And then what happens? Well, then along comes a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. So, you know in the level of purity laws, right, there's this idea that the Jewish man could speak to another Jewish man, that's a certain level of purity, that's fine, then you could speak to a Jewish lady, then if you, you could speak to a Gentile man, getting more impure here, speak to a Gentile lady, getting less pure, you could touch an animal, that's pretty dirty, touch a dead animal, touch a menstruating woman. Menstruating women were more impure than dead animals. She was an oclos, menstruating woman who was ill and poor. Pretty much as low as you can get. So here's the highest of the high, and the whole crowd is moving towards the highest of the high. And the the lowest of the low touches Jesus' cloak. What does he do? What happens? He stops. What is the first effect on the little girl? Because Jesus stopped. She dies. Wow. What a political statement Jesus has just made. I'm going to stop everything for this woman. I'm going to let a little girl die. You know, Jesus has healed a lot of people by this stage. The story in Mark 5 is not, the, good, the news in Mark 5 is not Jesus heals people. The news in Mark 5 is Jesus heals that person and gives priority to her. Wow. And then what happens, right? So then the woman, uh, so then he says, he feels power come out of him. And then he says, I don't have too much time to go into it now, but if you're political and you're talking about power, that's interesting. Power is going out of him. And then what does he say? He says, who touched me, right? 
So now you've got, well, why did Jesus say that? Again, we've already met a man who like, knows what's in people's hearts and he never loses an argument and all that stuff. And so now all of a sudden he's, he doesn't know who touched him? I don't think that's what's going on. It's not that he doesn't know. It's that what, what's the effect of him saying who touched me? What's the immediate response? What, is, what happens? The, well, the crowd thinks everybody touched him and then the woman has to come forward. Okay, so he doesn't point her out of the crowd, although he could. She has to come forward. Now, I've been in rooms where people said, oh, Jesus is humiliating this poor woman. No, he's not humiliating this poor woman. He is giving the lowest of the low, like less than human. He's giving her a voice. She has to own her own actions. She, all eyes are on her, and she has to talk to, to Jesus. He's, he's created a person where before there was no people. He has totally just empowered and created a human being right now where nobody saw a human. She didn't think she was a human being or a person. Like he's just created a person where before there was none. So then he says, so then, and then he says, uh, go in peace. Your faith has healed you. No, what does he, what does he actually say though? I just told a lie. What does he actually say? Daughter, go in peace. Remember Jairus' daughter had a man to speak for her? And then this, here comes this woman, and he's like, daughter, you're part of my family. He gives her his name, right? He's so good. I can't tell this story without crying. I cried this morning as well. But he's so good. Like He says, daughter, and he includes her in his family, right? That's a political act. He's like, I am with you. I'm, you're part of my family, under my covering and all this kind of stuff. And he's like, daughter, your faith has healed. Daughter, your willingness to be seen to be with me. She had to come forward, right? It's not, daughter, your ability to visualize what you want and name it and claim it and blab it and grab it. That is not what she's being affirmed for. She didn't have that. She was desperate. She didn't know what was going to happen. He's like, daughter, your willingness to reach out and touch me and then to come forward out of the crowd has healed you. And what's more, by saying daughter, he shows faith in her. He shows allegiance to her. Right? So it's the allegiance to Jesus and them being a member of his group, an identifiable member of his kingdom, that's where salvation happens and healing and sozo and all those good things. And then just to prove that he also is for elite people, he goes and heals Jairus' daughter. But frankly, she's kind of the, she's not the climax of this story, actually. She's raised from the dead. The climax of the story is, daughter, your faith has healed you. You know, and, and Jesus is not, he said, it's basically to show, like, I'm not waging some sort of class warfare here. I'm not leading the Oclos in violent rebellion against synagogue rulers. I'm going to go heal them too. But remember, it's like healing them is like healing the enemy. Yeah? But he also says to them, don't fear, but believe. And that, again, it's like, 
I'm here. And, you know, there's a famous scene. They show up and he says she's just sleeping and they, they're laughing at him. You know, they're showing that kind of offense at Jesus. The opposite of faith is not doubt. It's offense. The opposite, you know, if we are going to have faith in Sarah, it's not I doubt that you'll give us ice cream. It's that I don't believe you. I don't trust you. Right? It's like a moral offense that we have against her. It's not an intellectual I can doubt that Sarah has the money in her bank account to buy us all ice cream, but I can still believe her that she's a trustworthy person that wants to do it, right? And so this is what I want to, I mean, Phil's going to come up and we're going to pray, I guess, but like, I feel like that, to me, whenever I speak in rooms about this, I always kind of think there must be people in this room that are maybe hanging on by their fingertips, you know, when it comes to faith. And they're like, oh, I can't, I can't have faith in Jesus because I doubt something. I doubt the resurrection or I doubt the existence of evil in the world and the presence of a good God or something like that. It's like, yeah, there's a lot of unanswered questions. I'm not, faith in Jesus doesn't mean having clever answers to your complicated questions. It means something like, you're the best person we've ever met and we want to be seen to be with you. Even if we don't understand him, right? You know, and you can find evidences of that even in the New Testament. The Apostle Peter, all the disciples are offended at Jesus because he said, I am the bread of life. And the disciples leave him. They say, this is a hard teaching. And then Peter, Jesus turns to Peter and he says, are you going to leave as well? And Peter says, who else do we turn to? You have the words of eternal life. He doesn't say, I understand what you mean by bread of life, Jesus. Oh, those idiots, they're so dumb, aren't they? And he's like, basically, I don't understand you, but I believe that you have the words of, you're where life is, so we're going to stay here with you, right? So this is just how I want to, like I said, I'm not this slick. I'm not bringing it into landing or anything. We're not going to play music and force you to respond, but we're going to like, just say there's an opportunity, I think, if you, to have faith in Jesus, which is, I, you're the best person I've ever met, and I want to be seen to be with you. I believe. Help me in my unbelief. Let's stop there. Bless you.